Welcome to our podcast channel, brought to you by the British Chamber of Commerce in Singapore. Subscribe to our channel as we provide you with curated content and in-depth conversations by industry experts and leaders across Singapore, ASEAN and the United Kingdom. Today's podcast is brought to you in partnership with St. James's Place Wealth Management, a member company of the British Chamber of Commerce Singapore. As a FTSE 100 company, St. James's Place is one of the largest wealth management companies serving the international community living and working in Asia. Founded in 1991, it has grown rapidly to be the largest company in its sector in the UK and has offices in Singapore, Hong Kong and mainland China. Constantly evolving to meet the ever-changing needs of a diverse client base, St. James's Place specialises in providing highly personalised face-to-face advice to individuals and corporate clients to help them achieve their financial aspirations. To find out more information about St. James's Place Wealth Management, please visit www.sjp.asia. In this series, I'm absolutely delighted to be meeting key people that are representing the UK. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Natalie Black, Her Majesty's Trade Commissioner for Asia-Pacific, covering Northeast Asia, Southeast Asia and Australasia, and she took up that role in 2018. Natalie has held a number of posts in Her Majesty's Government, including the Deputy Head of the Number 10 Policy Unit, the Director of Internet Harms Unit, and Director of the Office of Cybersecurity at the Cabinet Office as well. Before joining the civil service, Natalie was the chief of staff for security at the London Organising Committee of the Olympic and Paralympic Games in London 2012 and a management consultant. Natalie is a graduate of the London School of Economics and Harvard Kennedy School, where she was a Fulbright Scholar. Within her role as Her Majesty's Trade Commissioner for Asia Pacific, she oversees all Department for International Trade work in Northeast Asia, Southeast Asia and Australasia, including growing the overall bilateral trade and investment relationships, improving market access for British companies, including small and medium-sized enterprises, and developing finance and trade policy. Natalie, I can't think of a better time to be talking to you and having this conversation, so thank you so much for joining us. David, it's my absolute pleasure. I've made myself a cup of tea. I'm not going to say what brand it is, but don't worry, it is properly British. And I'm really looking forward to a really good chat. Fantastic. Thank you. So you've been in post in Singapore since September 2018. Can you just describe for our listeners the Trade Commissioner role and your remit and what sort of some of your priorities are? Sure. So uh, it feels like a lifetime ago now, right? I mean, think of everything that's happened in the last two years. uh, And I'm sure we'll reflect on that a, a little bit today. But the Trade Commissioner role is relatively new. There are nine of us around the world. And I must say, one of the absolute highlights of the job is getting to work with the other eight trade commissioners. And the aim really is to recognise that the UK is going to have to position itself slightly different on the trade front in a a post-Brexit world. Uh, And we are really there to turbo boost our engagement efforts. I hope we also make the world feel a little bit smaller because we're a relatively small group. So I am regularly in touch with the others. I usually start the day um, with some kind of chat with Anthony Philipson in North America, who many of your listeners will remember as a previous high commissioner in Singapore. He's now the trade commissioner for North America based in New York. And I'll often finish the day uh, with my colleague, uh, John Edwards in China. So it's fantastic to be able to get that 
that global perspective. Uh, but most importantly, I hope that we provide a way for business to engage at a relatively senior level. The whole idea is to put more senior resource um, out around the world and be able to have those strategic conversations around how are they trying to grow their business across Asia Pacific? Where are they running into trouble and how can we help them? And perhaps most importantly at the moment, how we collectively navigate the future. I'm more than happy to, to talk about my priorities in detail and particularly the regional trade plan, which sets out our strategy. But I think it's also worth um, recognizing that the tectonic plates are moving quite a lot at the moment. So yes, we have a plan. Yes, we have a strategy. But a good proportion of my time is also spent just responding to the immediate and making sure that companies who are going through difficult times have the best possible support from the British government. Just picking up on that point, I mean, COVID had a massive, you know, fundamental impact on the on the economy. What sort of things are you doing within the DIT to support businesses that are that are struggling at the moment? So we've all been dealing with this since January, really, in in terms of immediate impact. So I think it's worth splitting the story into two, really. So there was the immediate crisis response, and. This, to be honest, included absolutely everyone who worked uh, in embassies and high commissions overseas. I mean, a phenomenal team effort. So some of my team were dedicated on trade responsibilities and others rolled up their sleeves and made sure that people were getting on flights and were getting advice um, for how they manage various family issues and all the different things that you would have read about in the paper. So it's been a time of everyone coming together and doing whatever needed to be done. But specifically in the trade space, our immediate focus was on PPE, so protective equipment for the NHS back in the UK. Like every government in the world, uh, this absolutely rocketed up the priority list. So we ran a, a, a small coordinating team out of Tokyo for the whole region and worked really closely with colleagues in China and uh, in Europe to identify suppliers and make sure that we could get what the NHS needed as quickly as possible. Not an easy process by uh, any stretch of the imagination, um, but one that I think the team worked incredibly hard on. Uh, and there's a lot of people doing very long shifts um, who didn't have any form of break for a very long time. So I'm immensely proud of them. So that was the sort of immediate response, immediate priority but at the same time, you know, there were so many businesses who were finding themselves in pretty precarious situations, right? Maybe they had just decided to expand to Asia Pacific and, and they had that first contract, which was their hook, and that had fallen away. So they were trying to work out what to do about staff um, and expansion plans. Maybe they were waiting on a, a key investment and, and again, that had fallen away or be, been delayed. So trying to provide a little bit of business intelligence in terms of how the investment landscape uh, was likely to evolve. And of course, amongst all this challenge, there was a lot of opportunity. Um, so making sure that we were really listening to particularly what governments and big corporates needed across Asia Pacific and trying to get British business in there quickly to help solve problems. 
So that might be on medtech, for example, you know, real area of strength in um, Singapore in particular in terms of level of interest. And we do so much uh, collaboration together. So really understanding what was needed, you know, whether that was on testing side, whether that was on the diagnostic side and trying to make sure that we could move as quickly as possible. So it's definitely not been boring, David. I know that you've been at the front end of a lot of this. And if we've learned anything over the last you know, nine months is that no one can do it alone. Uh, and so I, I think a real upside is the sort of deep partnerships and most importantly, friendships that have come out of all of this. There's lots of people navigating lots of difficult, difficult challenges, but also making the most of opportunities and most importantly, doing it together. And it, you know, I don't think we're, we're obviously not at the end of it, um, but it does feel like it's getting a little bit easier, and we're seeing some, you know, sort of some green shoots coming through, which is really promising. And I know that working with your team has been absolutely brilliant because we've been running some virtual trade missions, which is really exciting, and in the way that That's we right. operate uh, closely with you. So there are some things there. Can you talk through some of the sort of key aspects of your Asia Pacific trade plan? I mean, we're lucky to have you based in Singapore within the High Commission there, but I mean, you know, you've, you've got great visibility over over the Southeast Asia remit. So, could you just talk through some of sort of the things that are in your plan? Yeah, of course. And yeah, I should say I feel very lucky to be based in Singapore. It's a fantastic regional hub. I get to work with all of you guys and you've been incredibly supportive. It's not easy when you start a new role and you're in effect designing it. So I'm really appreciative of all the support that I've had from you guys in the chamber and from the High Commissioner, Cara Owen and the wider High Commission team. And it's meant that I've got a really solid home, which I really appreciate. But when I'm out on the road, uh, it, it is the most exciting element of the job. And it's definitely why I wanted to do it. Of course, life is a little bit different now and everything's behind Zoom. I, I do miss uh, that aspect of the role. But look, let's let's see what happens. And um, I'm sure I'll be out again uh, before we know it. In terms of our regional trade plan and our stra- strategy, it's probably best to think about it in four chunks. So the first area focuses on trade policy and market access. So this is all about opening up markets to UK business. And the area that probably gets most focused on in the press is, of course, trade deals. And for us, we think about it in a spectrum. So that might be new trade deals. Um, uh, I hope that you've spotted that we've just signed uh, the agreement with Japan a couple of weeks ago. Incredible team effort, predominantly uh, negotiated virtually um, something we're really quite proud of. But it also goes down to those markets where we haven't had those kinds of trade discussions before. And it's about deepening partnerships. And we have a particular model called a, a joint trade review, which we've rolled out with Indonesia, Thailand, and we're in the process of discussing with Malaysia. And I'm more than happy to talk about that in detail. Then in this first bucket, it's also worth remembering the ad hoc market access issues that come up. And that's been particularly true during COVID, where for various different reasons at certain points, it's been very tricky to get um, certain goods into certain markets. And that's where the team can work with other governments to understand what the problems are, work with businesses to make sure that everyone's got the necessary data and they're talking to the right people. And that can be very satisfying, actually, in terms of real world impact. So that's bucket number one. Bucket number two focuses on attracting high quality investments into the UK. I'm personally 
particularly focused on attracting research and development investment into the UK and also making sure that uh, we spread that opportunity outside of London. So you would have heard the Prime Minister Boris Johnson's talk quite a lot about the levelling up agenda uh, and the need to recognise that there are opportunities for investment across the whole of the UK. And one of the things that have struck me in Singapore is that you know we have this incredible network of so many people who have spent time in the UK from Singapore, particularly, of course, through education. And they know the country really, really well. But they might not have kept up with the fact that Belfast is now an incredible cyber hub or Leeds is an incredible medtech hub. Um, and so it's really working with investors to help them understand actually how the economy is developed back in the UK. And then the third bucket is around supporting UK businesses to grow in this part of the world. This, I think, is one of the most exciting areas and really where the regional model comes into its own, because we sort of moved up the value chain, if you like. Um, I spend a lot of time talking to the Asia-Pacific heads of British companies, many, of course, who are based in Singapore and many, of course, who are members of the chamber, and being able to have strategic discussions with them around, OK, what's your strategy for the next few years? Where do you think you want to focus first and how can we help you do that? And that means that they don't have to have lots of individual conversations. Of course, that comes and, and that's natural. But at least at the beginning, you can get that overall picture because we get so many questions around, should we focus on Vietnam or the Philippines first? Or is Singapore the best route into Indonesia? Or should we be looking elsewhere? And there wasn't really a mechanism to have that kind of joined up conversation and the final bucket, and in many ways the most important bucket, is actually how we work with the rest of the UK government. So again, for business, sometimes it can feel a little unjoined up. Uh, I'm sure you're far too polite to say, David. Uh, but on occasion, you, you, there's lots of different government departments who now have an international focus, and, and quite rightly. And so this is making sure that trade is part of the overall government strategy, but also is working really closely with colleagues to understand what they need back in Whitehall. So, for example, the industrial strategy, which I know the Chamber has taken a particular interest in, is led by Bayes back in the UK. So actually, how do we work with them to make sure that they are delivering, well, developing and delivering the industrial strategy across Asia Pacific? So those are our four buckets. Of course, I hope I'm making it sound uh, quite simple. In, in reality, it's obviously a, a lot more challenging, but that's all part of the fun of the job. Brilliant. And you've recognised that there's some, you know, one success story, which was the, the relationship with Japan. And I know a number of our members are sort of talking to us about the process that's happening with the, the continuity agreements around the region. Is there anything you can share with our members just in terms of where we're up to, what's going on in the background and any, anything that we, we can we can talk about? Yes. So uh, you won't be surprised that this is a, a big focus for us at the moment. Um, we are in the transition period and we want to make sure that we're in the best possible position when that comes to an end. And going back to my spectrum point, there are a number of different trade discussions at, at different stages. So maybe it's best if I sort of quickly run through those and, and you can let me know what's most interesting. So continuity is absolutely the priority. And in those areas, the, the two pieces of work we have underway at the moment are continuity um, with Singapore, of course, and continuity with Vietnam. 
So Singapore is the UK's largest trading partner in ASEAN, very, very important for us, accounts for 1.2% of uh, UK trade. And the EU-Singapore FTA entered to enforce in November um, last year. So uh, we are in discussions now. I, I think those are, are going well, but you won't be surprised that I won't want to offer a running commentary nor any particular insights on, on what is a negotiation. It's a, it's a negotiation with friends, of course, uh, but it is a negotiation. And the other continuity agreement um, that we are discussing at the moment is Vietnam. So the EU-Vietnam uh, FTA came into force in August, so fairly recently, and the team both in Hanoi and Ho Chi Minh City, are working incredibly hard. In fact, I've just been in touch with them this morning to make sure that we have the right arrangements in place. So those are two deals which are very much in focus in the continuity side. Uh, And then, of course, uh, we're looking to new partnerships and new opportunities. So I've mentioned Japan, uh, but we also have discussions underway with Australia and New Zealand And the second round of discussions with Australia are going on this week, in fact. Uh, So again, I I won't offer a running commentary because I will get in trouble with uh, various different people. But I mean, one thing I think it is worth reflecting on and, you know, these are very tough discussions, quite rightly, because they are so important. But it's worth remembering this is predominantly being done virtually, right? If, If you and I had been talking about this a year ago, when I first started, two years ago, and I said, by the way, David, we're going to negotiate most of the UK-Japan free trade agreement by virtual means, I think you probably would have laughed at me. So I think it's very impressive what both sides have done in very difficult circumstances. And the point is that this is just the beginning, and we're working with colleagues across Asia-Pacific to be as ambitious as possible. COVID has had a massive impact on lots of businesses that we're seeing. It must have had an impact on the, and you've mentioned the delivery in terms of the free trade agreement with Japan, but it's, is there a sense that sort of everything's on the table because the world's in a very different space at the moment? Does that create an opportunity or is it a bit of a hurdle for you? It's a really interesting question. I think sort of back to the points I'm making right at the beginning, the tectonic plates are still moving. You know, personally, I'm, I'm still deeply sceptical about any numbers that come out on the um, economic impacts of COVID across Asia Pacific, right? We're, we're all looking at the IMF figures. We're all looking at the numbers coming out of ADB and ASEAN and everything else. But we just have to wait and see how the dust settles, as frustrating as that is for planning, because it makes it very difficult for, for business. But uh, I think if we've learned anything from COVID, it's the importance of partnerships and the importance of diversity of partnerships. So I think it's incentivized the need of everyone to make sure that uh, we're progressing trade discussions, keeping markets open, keeping goods and services flowing. That's been absolutely crucial to navigating COVID. Uh, and whether you know, you're, you've been trying to get an order from Red Mart, for example, in Singapore, which you know, personally I think has done an amazing job keeping everything on the road, um, all the way through to you're, you're running a business and you're trying to import goods across uh, Southeast Asia into Singapore, you know how important this, what can sound quite a simple thing, is the long-term benefit of not just your business, but the economy. So there's a, a lot of incentive to get things right at the moment. But uh, we need to recognise that the world is changing. So navigating that is very important. Excellent. And you've talked about partnerships and you've 
you know, talked about the, the free trade agreements with Japan and, and Australia and New Zealand uh, and the discussions that you're having there at the moment and the continuity agreements with Singapore and Vietnam. Thank you for sharing those as well. There's a lot going on on your plate, on your desk at the moment with your team. What really excites you about this region? Where, where do you see the really strong synergies that sort of that sort of make you tick in your role? Because you must see lots of different sort of pockets. I mean, you talked about the UK and, you know, Belfast being a one hub and, you know, Leeds being a medtech hub. And you must see that the pockets of, of opportunity here in Asia Pacific as well. Definitely. I mean, it's, it's why I wanted to do this job, right? Um, I genuinely think there is nowhere more exciting to be at the moment. Um, Asia Pacific has everything, you know, it's diversity, it's energy. There are very young economies. So you look at uh, Philippines, average age there is about 24. And of course, in Japan, the demography is very, very different. So it's all the challenges of globalization come into the fore uh, across Asia Pacific. Uh, And one of the things that really struck me when I arrived was the extent to which technology has become so important across Asia Pacific and the demand for great, great tech. I think the very first time I came to Singapore, I was sort of reflecting on this as, you know, about 10 years ago um, now uh, when I was doing um, uh, the cyber job. Cyber then was only really just taking off. Now, of course, it is one of the top things that people want to talk to me about because everyone is really interested in how they manage the threats and where the best technology and businesses are coming from. So I think one of the things I've really most enjoyed from this role is actually getting into the technology space across Asia Pacific and really developing those relationships. I've been surprised how little is known about the UK tech sector. One of my favorite things to do is to ask an audience, you know, how many unicorns has the UK produced? Um, I was giving a lecture in uh, Jakarta before COVID, obviously, and um, it was a really impressive audience of some of the best young brains uh, in Indonesia. And I asked that question and they came back to me and said, "Mm, maybe two maybe three. (laughs) When I said, you know, 79 and growing, they were genuinely shocked. So sometimes I think we can take it a little bit for granted that the the success of our tech sector is is understood here. So definitely the the focus of the last two years has been changing that. Um, uh, You know, again, a big thanks to the Chamber because you've been so supportive and championing that cause. And we've seen some great wins. We've seen a number of really great British unicorns heading out into Asia Pacific. But perhaps most importantly, we're seeing the next generation coming through. And they are definitely recognizing that the growth opportunities are here. So when you used to talk to them, it would be, right, well, uh, yep, uh, I'm based in London, I'm based in Bristol, and uh, really keen to head out to the West Coast you know, set up my office in San Francisco and maybe look for some funding from Europe. But actually on a, a survey which Tech Nation did recently, and they asked this cohort, where do you want to expand overseas? And actually at the top of the list uh, was interest in Singapore rather than Silicon Valley, which wow. is a brilliant tagline for EDB and uh, Enterprise Singapore. And I, I think it shows how strong the ecosystem is now, particularly in Singapore, but you actually see that across the region. And so we've done a number of things over the last couple of years to help facilitate and accelerate that. Do you want to talk a little bit about Tech Nation? Yeah, so some listeners might remember that back in the day, when everyone was talking about Silicon Valley, in the UK, we were talking about Silicon Roundabout. 
which was easy to laugh about. It was very easy to laugh about, but it was a serious initiative that's made a massive difference to the UK mm. and uh, really focused attention and effort on growing our tech sector. And a uh, key player in, in Silicon Roundabout is, at that time, it was Tech City and was uh, set up as a, a government-funded organization to support the growth of the UK tech sector. And uh, Tech City then became Tech Nation, and I was very grateful to be part of that journey when I was in number 10. And now we're working with Tech Nation to help them go global. So in June, at London Tech Week, the Prime Minister announced a new digital trade network across Asia Pacific which is a, a three-year pilot working with the Department for Digital Culture and Media and Sports. Um, we have been given money by the Treasury to step up our efforts in this part of the world. Uh, and what that looks like, it means turbo-boosting support to the next generation of unicorns, the guys I was mentioning before, you know, the next deliveries, Babylons, uh, transfer-wise, that we want to see out in this part of the world. And we are uh, working with Tech Nation on that because their accelerator programs, most of these guys have been through. And so the idea being that we will work with that pipeline to help them expand across Asia Pacific. And Tech Nation will be putting an additional resource into Singapore, uh, Tokyo and Sydney as part of that. Um, so really looking forward uh, to working together and it's getting a lot of interest and a lot of attention. So that's fantastic. But the Digital Trade Network will also focus on attracting investments into the UK. So making sure that um, we can have the best possible conversations with investors and really understand what they're looking for and make the right connections. And then lastly, and I think perhaps most interestingly, is really being part of the debate in this part of the world around digital standards. You know, when you look at some of the trickiest issues, particularly around the use of the internet going forward, a lot of that is going to be decided out here. And that was true before COVID in terms of the challenges between the US and China, which I know the, the Chamber of shine a spotlight on you've had a number of really interesting conversations but I think the debate around tech and tech in the world has only been accelerated by COVID and so we want to be part of that discussion and to help shape that discussion and obviously champion a, a free and open internet that, that benefits everyone so a really really interesting time for tech and a great time to be working with Singapore on all of these issues. No, that sounds really, really exciting. Um, and def definitely think if there's any way we can sort of plug the chamber into support with that ecosystem piece here, very, very happy to have that conversation um, next time. Are there, are there other sectors that are sort of really high on the agenda? I mean, sort of tech, tech covers an, an awful lot. Yes. Uh, but I mean, we have got COP26, you know, next year in the UK. I know the sustainability agenda is, is huge and there's a, that's a big part of the SG-UK partnership for the future. Is, is, that, is that something that's, that's high on the agenda too? Yes, definitely. And I, I should explain as well that the way that we think about tech is not as a vertical, but as a horizontal. So it's quite often how tech is disrupting a whole range of sectors. So that might be infrastructure, for example, that might be medical services. And exploring those opportunities is, is quite a different way of doing business. I think in the way, same way that many CEOs are grappling with this, governments are grappling with this. So um, we, are, we are trying to take quite a different uh, approach. And more broadly, when you look across the sectors where we collaborate, particularly with Singapore, I mean, I think what's exciting is the range uh, and the range of interest 
but I have noticed a marked step up in sustainability issues. And particularly, again, how they are applied to sectors um, that are crucial for the economic recovery post-COVID. So when I talk to big investors, whether that's sovereign funds or, or corporates, I think what's really impressive is that you're seeing that boards are taking a big interest in these issues now. Um, it's not a nice to have. It's seen as a key part of corporate performance, which I hope is setting the tone for what we all know needs to happen. Again, pre-COVID, this was very important. Post-COVID, it's absolutely essential. We have the chance to design an economic recovery, which is truly sustainable and addresses all the issues that um, everyone has been grappling for for so long. It's worth remembering, you know, the UK has demonstrated, I, I think, some very impressive commitments in this area and, and really has tried to show a leadership role. So we were the first major economy to legislate for net zero emissions by 2050. And we will be hosting COP26 in Glasgow in November. So our role at the moment is, we think, to, to convene and, and challenge. Uh, and I think there is absolutely a role for trade in that. Um, some of the areas you know, that we talk to Singapore about regularly is you know, sustainable infrastructure. So you, uh, you have infrastructure, Asia-based out of Singapore, very interesting initiatives across the region. Um, how can we work together to make sure that every stage of the process is to the benefit of the whole of the local economy across Southeast Asia? And that might be thinking about the planning process and the procurement process as well, You know, thinking about how you incentivize all the way, of course, through to actual builds and physically um, how you take account of the opportunities that this redesign and, and potential reset offers us. So you're absolutely right to point out that sustainability is rocketed up the agenda. And I think that's fantastic. And the job for all of us is to make sure that that's sustained. Uh, we started the year seeing you know, the fires across Australia. We've all lived through covid and uh, we're now in pretty challenging economic circumstances. So, so how do you create an upside out of this? And I do think it is by genuinely tackling some of the sustainability issues. That's really, really exciting. It really, really exciting to, to hear some of you know, the things that are happening in your world at the moment within Her Majesty's government overseas, but also some of the really key citizens and partnerships that, that you're seeing develop. Can we, can we turn the conversation to you? Can you tell us a little bit about your journey to Singapore and, and, and also perhaps sort of why you moved from the private sector into the, into the public sector? Uh, yes, uh, you know, very, very happy to. I mean, I would start by saying, you know, everyone's journey is different uh, and mine definitely wasn't planned. And uh, actually, that's been one of the highlights of my career, the, the opportunity and to be honest, honour to be able to experience some once-in-a-lifetime opportunities through um, various different roles. So, yes, my journey to Singapore, I think probably the, the place to start is, as I say, about 10 years ago, was invited to give the keynote at a major Singapore cyber conference. So I won't mention which one. And I remember uh, arriving at Changi. The conference was at the Marina Bay Sands. And uh, I just thought, wow, this is such an interesting place and there is so much to learn. Uh, so I had the pleasure of working with um, Singapore 
on and off through a, a number of roles, starting with cyber, um, but then also um, during my time at number 10. So it felt quite natural, actually, in terms of when I was thinking about what to do next, to move out to this part of the world and, and bring some of my policy background, tech expertise, uh, and as you say, a, a bit of a private sector perspective. So the move from the private sector into public sector was probably the only uh, decision that was uh, sort of more consciously planned. Uh, I always wanted to have a good career in the the public sector. Uh, I'm afraid I'm quite traditional about these things. I, I think there's no better or more satisfying way to be able to contribute to your country. And obviously, at the moment, it's, it's pretty interesting times to be doing that. Uh, and I feel very grateful and honoured, really, to, to have this responsibility at the moment. But uh, you're only as good as your team. As, as you and I both know, you have a fantastic team at the Chamber. Yeah. Uh, and I'm very, very lucky to have an amazing team across Asia Pacific. And I think one of the absolute highlights of this job is to work with so many people from so many different countries. So about uh, 75% of my team are, are locally engaged. So uh, you get on the phone every day and you're hearing this perspective from the South Korea, from New Zealand, from the Philippines, and that's fantastic. So it's been an interesting ride. It has, and you know, I'm dying to ask you about your engagement with the with the London Organising Committee for the Olympic and Paralympic Games. That I mean, you had such a, such an important role in terms of the delivery of what was an amazing month in in the UK. Can you just talk about some of the things that were that were some of the challenges, some of the things that you were working on there? Uh, don't tell anyone, but I, th- I think that was probably the best job I ever had. <laughs> I mean, uh, I think everyone who's... <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, I think everyone who looks back on London 2012, you know, it really was a once in a generation moment. And I think what was unique about it, and we all we all say this, and we're all very much still in, in touch because you, you build such a, an incredible family feeling out of that kind of intense experience. But there was an unmovable deadline and uh, everyone just absolutely worked their socks off to make sure that we delivered for the UK on, on the world's stage so uh, the the main things I remember are not having any sleep (laughs) I think Uh, I I was lucky if I would get two or three hours a night it it really was an incredibly intense experience Uh, and some things didn't go to plan it's well documented uh, what happened on the security side in terms of uh, security guards and uh, I definitely learned a lot in terms of when a, a real crisis hits uh, and you have to be at the center of it and fix it. And then there wasn't any choice about that. So uh, I, I definitely learned a huge amount from wonderful people working under the spotlight in very challenging circumstances. But the, the outcome was just amazing. And uh, I don't think any of us were more proud than you know, opening ceremony night. Uh, from a security point of view, it's obviously, it's always a bit more nerve-wracking I think for us than anyone else because you're desperately trying to make sure that uh, nothing is going wrong but you still you still get to enjoy it a little bit and and see it all come together so yeah definitely a highlight so far. Brilliant and you you were born in Southampton I think which is a great maritime hub for the UK so it, it feels like a really sort of nice fitting sort of transition from Southampton to Singapore. Uh, it definitely does. And good research, by the way. So uh, 
Yes, yeah, so, so I was born in Winchester, but I went to school in, in, in Southampton. And I think one of the areas I'm really, really proud of the team in, in Singapore, and you, you have a fantastic team here, is the work that they've done to develop the maritime relationships. And I know that you, David, personally have been a big champion of that. So uh, I very, very much appreciate it because, as you say, it's sort of one of the big areas of commonality. Uh, and we probably weren't quite doing as much as we could have done together. And, and you guys have um, absolutely revolutionized that. And, and that's everything from making sure that the port owners are talking to each other at the, the highest level and identifying areas for collaboration. But also, you know, going back to the technology theme, uh, I think it's been some really interesting work to look at how we can bring new technologies both in to Singapore and into the UK to uh, ports like Southampton. So those collaborations, particularly city to city, I think for the, the next couple of years are going to be a big focus for us. Yes, it ties into the levelling up agenda, but but also I think it's how you make trade more real to people uh, when they can see actually the difference it's making in their own backyard. So please do keep up the work on Maritime. We are very, very supportive uh, and very grateful for everything that you've been doing. Great stuff. It's been really, really fascinating having this conversation, understanding a bit more about you and your role. Just final couple of questions, if I may. I mean, you're, you're, in, you're in such an important position within the UK government and at such a massive period of change for the UK. Who do you turn to for advice? You know, who do you pick up the phone to if you're struggling and have a bad day? Because we all do, don't we? We all sort of think, oh, how am I going to tackle this? Who's, who, <laughs> who, 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 do you, who do you turn to for some support? Oh, well, I call you, David, quite a lot if I've uh, got a challenge in Singapore. So thank you for that. Um, but on a personal basis, you know, I've been incredibly grateful in my career so far to work for amazing people and work with amazing people. So I'm very lucky that I have a, a great network of people to call to just say, oh, what would you do about this? And uh, I'm very lucky to study in the US and um, had two fantastic years at Harvard and have a, a very close-knit group of girlfriends from there who are all doing very different things now who share advice and guidance. But I think that's true for all of us, right? Uh, no one can do this alone. And anyone who thinks they can, you know, usually runs into a little bit of trouble. So I think having that support network in the best of times, let alone at the moment, is really, really important. And I think especially as leaders where you're going through tricky times, your, your focus quite rightly is, is on the team. And uh, I know you were doing this, David, during COVID and myself and the rest of my senior management team. You, know, you spent most of the time on the phone to your team, checking in, how are you doing? How is everything? Uh, and sometimes it's easy to forget that you also need to look after yourself a little bit. Um, so I think having that network of people who um, you can either get in touch with or, or proactively will just say, oh, uh, I saw this happen in the paper. How are you doing? It is really appreciated and really important. And I think ultimately that's what builds resilient leaders. If we could offer you the British Chamber of Commerce Singapore time machine and you can transport yourself back to a point of your career or your life where you would give yourself some advice from what you know now, when would you go back to tell yourself something and what would that thing be? Wow, what a question. What a great question. Um, so I don't know if I've got a specific time, but I've got a general theme which my team are going to hate me for saying because uh, they think I pushed them too hard already. <laughs> but I always think you can do more than you realise. And you sometimes think you're limited by time, money, 
buy-in, whatever it might be. And actually, you can always go that little bit further than you expect. So uh, one of my great learnings is that I always tend to regret the things I haven't done rather than the things that I have done. So I will always usually have a have a go at something. And I think you can always just push yourself that little bit harder than you expect. Not um, not emotionally unnecessarily, not, not for the sake of it, but I think all of us can achieve a bit more than sometimes we give ourselves credit for. Um, and I think it's a really important message to share with your team and, and encourage your team to just be that little bit more ambitious about what they think they can do. Uh, and then you want to create an environment where everyone has a go and everyone does their very best. And sometimes things work out and sometimes they don't. But the important thing is you know that you enjoy trying and you probably will regret not having had a go. That's a fantastic way to, to, to sort of close because and a really positive message. And I guess just lastly, if you could look back on your time in Singapore in the future, what legacy or impact would you have liked to have made in your role now? Oh, big question. Big question. Uh, I mean, you should definitely ask your listeners and see what they think, because in many ways, what they think is way more important, right? Ultimately, it will be up to business to judge uh, the legacy of uh, my time across Asia Pacific. But I hope I hope that we would have made a, a real step change in uh, the relationship on how we collaborate on technology as a, as a horizontal opportunity, not as a vertical. And we have sustainable partnerships that actually position both economies the best possible way going forward. And that we have embedded partnerships, whether that's through ASEAN, uh, whether that's through CPTPP, that uh, makes us major regional collaborators in this part of the world, which I think is is quite possible. My other legacy is is probably... (laughs) The amount of time uh, that I spend in botanic gardens, uh, I think the footfall will go down after leave. Uh, I love it there. Uh, I just think it's absolutely wonderful. And the same for McRitchie. I mean, I must say that one of the pleasures of being based in Singapore and, uh, and, and spending more time there during COVID is being able to enjoy the outdoors. And I think that's true, actually, wherever you are in the world. When I talk to the team across Asia Pacific, so across 13 different countries, the theme of uh, really appreciating nature and the outside uh, has definitely rocketed up, I think, people's interests and agendas. And it ties into everything we're trying to do on trade. You know, sustainability is not just for the sake of it. It's so that we can all go outside and, and enjoy ourselves. So maybe maybe two thoughts there on one a more formal legacy and, and one a less formal. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been a real privilege and a, and a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for making the time. My absolute pleasure, David. And thanks again to you and your team. You guys are absolute superstars and we do really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can share our podcasts and tag us in with the hashtag BritJamSG on Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn. For more information on the British Chamber of Commerce in Singapore, please visit www.britjam.org.sg or should you wish to get involved with our podcasts, please feel free to contact us at info at britjam.org.sg.